Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Kusagania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, July 30th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today I want to talk about, I want to talk about various topics. First I'm going to talk about my work and Christagenia. I don't do this too often. It's not supposed to be all about me, of course. It's about God and Christ and our race. But on the other hand, I don't want to be a mysterious black box to the people that listen to me and to the people that support our work. So the first thing that I want to do tonight is that I want to thank all of our supporters who make our work possible. Christagenia is listener-supported. I praise Yahweh daily for the support that I get, which enables me to continue the work that I do. It has been nearly eight years now, and I pray that I am able to do a lot more than whatever it is that I have done. We are not ever going to be wealthy or rich from our work at Christagenia. In fact, I, I sort of... um Expect to stay in a state of poverty and don't mind it a bit because we are wealthy in other ways. But we praise Yahweh that somehow the bills get paid and we can continue our work for another month. That is the way we have learned to live, not to worry and to keep working through thick and thin. I do not generally go out of my way to thank my supporters personally. I understand that at least some people in the past have been rather chagrined by that. I would rather hope that they do not support me simply to seek my gratitude, because that support would not be sincere. I really do not even like discussing money and support for our work, and I myself am repulsed by the idea of making solicitations. I do my best to follow the Example set by Paul of Tarsus in that regard, even when I cannot live up to them. But on the other hand, I am a firm believer in the words of our Messiah, where he said, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 6, Take heed that ye do not do your alms before men, to be seen of them, otherwise you have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have the reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. I have in the past sent out CDs with brief letters of appreciation, and will probably do so again. I never seem to have the time. But to me, it is far more important to thank those who support our work by striving to improve it, by doing more of it, and by making certain that it is it is as freely accessible as possible to all who may endeavor to find it. To all white Christians who are out there searching for some truth. 
So a great deal of my time is used to make, just to make certain that Christogenia.org employs the best technology that I can deploy and to make certain that it all stays up and running. That's not as easy as you may think it is. Christogenia is not only a ministry. It is a veritable IT operation of its own. We currently lease three large servers on the Internet. When I say large servers, I'm talking 16 or 32 gigabytes of memory, terabyte or two terabyte sized hard drives, and a cost of over $200 per month for each server. Our own Christogenia websites occupy two of those servers. We could do it with one, but we learned long ago to have twice the capacity that we need, and that assures that we stay online, that we have sufficient backups, in case of another all-too-frequent technical failure. The third server houses 15, soon-to-be 17, Christian identity or Christian nationalist websites that belong to other ministries, which are not our own. We not only host those websites, but I also developed most of them myself. It's not my writing, it's my technology. That is my type. All three of these servers are backed up nightly to two other less expensive servers in another country. They're cheap because they're in Europe. The data's in Europe, but it's offline, so it's not breaking any laws, because Europe is crazy. That method saved all of our websites in 2013, when the hosting company we were using suddenly closed its doors, and we abruptly lost four web servers here in the U.S. in one day. Those backup servers are used to host a few additional sites that I own and develop and sometimes post on, such as Lithobolus.net, which are not really Christian identity sites, but which are made hoping to attract people to Christogenia. Aside from these five servers, we have a few small cloud servers for special purposes, such as the chat server or a couple of our radio streams. We have four. We have six radio streams. I'm sorry. But the Internet is not free. You may think it should be free. People often do, because Facebook is free and YouTube is free. But you cannot reach any significant portion of the public with our message on Facebook and YouTube. Forget it. So far this year, Christogenia alone has averaged 30,000 visits per month. Has had 1.1 million page views and has had nearly half a million podcast downloads. Try doing that with your Facebook account and our message and see how long it is before the account is revoked. Go post 200 videos on YouTube and get your account canceled in 10 minutes. It's not worth the time. So you have to have, if you want to stay online, your own servers and your own ability to produce websites. Currently, and partly because of our recent server upgrades, our 
Our online expenses are approaching $900 per month. People may wonder at that, but leasing one decent dedicated server on the internet, look it up, put dedicated server in Google and see what the costs are. One decent dedicated server on the internet costs at least $200 per, per month. And then you need the technology to use that server. You need the know-how to use that server. And you can easily find that on Google for yourself. There are, there are a couple of cheaper hosts and many more which are much more expensive. But the cheaper hosts like oneandone.com have already canceled our services in the past when we lost four servers at one and one when they shut us down in 2012. When our enemies shut us down one way, or cannot shut us down in one way, they try to shut us down in other ways. Recently, Christogenia suffered from distributed denial of service, or DDoS attacks, when 500 or 1,000 servers are used by certain entities to make rapid-fire continuous requests to your server to try to overload it and take it offline. Recently, Christogenia has suffered such attacks quite regularly. This has always happened at least occasionally, but it, it has been rather persistent for the past several months. These attacks are, are often made with techniques that Cloudflare which we use to help prevent such attacks, and that's an additional monthly cost, Cloudflare is not equipped to protect against. They have employed techniques such as barraging the website with web-based data-intensive queries and at overloading caches and stressing the database engine. I am now talk taking other prevent other, I'm sorry, precautions to prevent those things. But eventually, those precautions will have to be improved. And my tactics will have to change again. It seems that over the last two or three months, at least a quarter of the mornings I arrive at my desk, usually by 7, 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time, the website was either down or had been slowed to a crawl. Then last weekend, there was a sustained DDoS attack which did indeed corrupt the database on the main Christogenia server early last Sunday morning. People were wondering at me in social media and in texts and in Skypes why the website was down so much on Sunday especially, but also for great parts of Monday, and this is why. I could have brought the sites back quickly by rebuilding the databases from backups, which I make four times a day for my main website and once a day for the others. But that would have only been a temporary cure. I had been pondering an upgrade of the server itself all year, since the server was three years old. Three years in computer years, you should know from your own experiences with your laptops or with Windows or whatever, three years in computer years is a long time, and especially for a server. Three years was a pretty good run considering the earlier experiences we have had with web hosting, and I have been pondering an upgrade for six months now. So this was the impetus to do that. So I spent most of Monday server shopping, while at the same time I patched up the database problem temporarily 
and made sure that the old server stayed running. Monday is usually the day I spend away from my desk, but we still got time for a walk on the beach. Melissa and me and my tablet, which I use several times along the way to restart the database and the website server. Every time it became overloaded. I got delivery on a new server Tuesday night, and by Wednesday afternoon I had all of the websites on that old server, which is really only five and a radio stream, move to new homes. I say homes because I actually replaced the old server with three with three servers, one new large file server, with four times the memory and twice the disk space as the old one. So a problem was turned into a blessing. Christogenia should be a lot more responsive, a lot faster, and because the website, along with the Mindcom project and the Saxon Messenger, and a backup data space is like what, where I keep extra copies of podcasts in case a file goes corrupt and stuff like that, is 600 gigabytes. That's a lot of data for an online web server. So we have one new large file server and two small cloud servers so that the radio stream and email services can be separated. Those services running on the web server expose the server IP numbers to the public, which is one method of attack that has recently been employed against us. So I moved them to separate dedicated spaces. And a small cloud server only costs $20 a month for one sufficient to carry a radio stream and a website. I am one website. You're not going to get much more than that. I am sorry to bother you with the technical details, so I have tried to keep them to a minimum. In the future, I will fragment the services Christogenia employs to an even greater degree. But for now, our email and two radio streams are on separate cloud servers. While it is more to manage, it will cut down on the avenues of possible exploitation and reduce the risks when a server is compromised. It just increases the costs somewhat. The Christogenia forum is soon going to need an upgrade. Since the old software will not run on the new server, so I had to move the forum to one of the two older servers rather than keep it on the main server. I'm going to have to consider that upgrade because by next year, I will have to upgrade those other two servers. Christogenia is not only a website. It is over a dozen websites, some of them dedicated to the work of others, Clifton Emmerheiser. Bertrand Compare, Wesley Swift, and it is also a chat server. It is another voice chat server. Four, I'm sorry, six radio streams. I only broadcast live on four of them, and we don't use half of the capacity, but it's good to have them in case one goes out. And a hosting and web development service for other Christian identity pastors and writers, which I never charge for when I choose to do a website for another Christian identity pastor or writer. I've never charged for that. And on top of all that, we also remain engaged in other venues and in social media as often as we can spare the time. Of course, some of the more gracious people that we've done websites for have 
pitched in with the costs, which we of course appreciate, but we do not expect. So the two podcasts, and perhaps 20 or 30 pages, sometimes 20, sometimes 30, pages that I prepare for them each week, are really only about half of what I do. The other half of my time is mostly spent making certain that the servers and all of the 40 or so websites that we have developed and host, our own and those of others, are up to date and continue to operate. We are also continually developing new websites or improving on the ones that we have. This month, for instance, we have updated the Bertrand Compare site, which is now using modern mobile and tablet-friendly software. The old software was not mobile-friendly at all. And we are in the middle of doing the same thing for the Wesley Swift site, as well as a new site for Sega Truth Ministries, which is near completion. Our tasks never seem to end, but we prefer to have it that way. The rest of this program, now that I'm done talking about my work, the rest of this program is an extract and an evaluation from a small collection of various conversations and posts which I have had on Facebook over the past several months and I feel I should share here with everybody. Not too many of my listeners are actually from Facebook. I am presenting this to both clarify some things for some of our newer listeners and so that some of our older ones can see how we would answer certain disputes because sometimes I pick up in social media for others who, who were just at a loss for debate. I, I, I don't. They, 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 it, it takes a long time to think you know most of the answers. Of course, in a lifetime, none of us are ever going to have half of the answers. Talking about social media, while Facebook is usually a major pain in the ass, there's no doubt especially with the attitude of so many so-called Christians, I want to discuss one way that it is actually helpful before I move on to all the negatives, right? This is in our reference, this is in reference to my own book, Christrike. And let me get another drink. One mistake that I think I made when I wrote Christrike is that I took it for granted that at least most identity Christians know certain things when they do not. It's amazing how many people think that they're identity Christians and accomplished when all they really know is what they've been taught in Baptist and Methodist churches and they layer the racial issue on top of that and they retain all the bullshit they learned in the Baptist and the Methodist churches and the Lutheran and the Catholic and the Episcopalian and everybody else. They just layered the racial issue on top of their Baptist ass clown bullshit and they think that they're there. They think they've arrived and they haven't. Christ said you have to become like a little child 
Your mind has to become like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. That means that you have to dispose of all the presumptions. You have to dispose of all the false premises. You cannot put the new wine of Christian identity into the old wineskins of your Baptist ass-clown pastors or your Catholic church pedophiles. You can't do it. Well, I blame it on myself that people don't understand me, as I was saying. One mistake I think I made when I wrote Christreich is that I took it for granted that at least most identity Christians know certain things when they do not. Some fools, and this is back in 2011, I started to write Christreich in 2010, and I was only out of prison two years. So I was naive about the state of our people. That's what I was naive about. Concerning Christreich, some fools can't even get past the title. They see the word Reich, which is only a German word for kingdom, and they think it's a Hitler book. I can't believe that. That's amazing to me. Like most German words, the word Reich was around for over a thousand years before it ever passed through Adolf Hitler's lips. Of course, Christreich would be a reference to the kingdom of Christ, not Hitler, and I will never back off of that title, no matter how stupid people are. But I had the same mistaken belief while doing many of my earlier podcasts, that identity Christians were on the same page about at least most of the biblical and historical basics. Now that I have realized that they are not, not at all, not even close, in my commentaries on Paul and the Minor Prophets, and in Acts, and when I did Luke to, to a degree, but especially when I started Acts, after my experience with my road trip, in 2012, while I was doing Luke, I have made an effort to be much more diligent in explaining everything I can, every time I encounter it, even if it means that I have to repeat a lot of basics. I hope to continue to improve and to carry that diligence through to a second edition of Christreich, which I hope will be completed within the next two years. Discussing things with people in social media, such as Facebook, actually helps me write my commentaries, because for me it brings to light different things that many identity Christians do not know or understand. So I try to focus on them at the, at the proper time when I have the correct context. So occasionally I take up the time to engage in such discussions, when the people I am engaging with can intelligently discuss their viewpoints, and more importantly, when they can encounter disagreement without getting butt hurt and offended. A little later this evening, I might, I don't know, I've been kicking it around. When I wrote this this morning, I thought I would. I will talk about one of those individuals who could not countenance disagreement. Most people in places like Facebook would rather argue and have sport than actually learn. And every other clown is a know-it-all who in reality knows little of nothing. Facebook also tends to make people think they are a lot tougher than they really are, and they quickly say things that they would never say to your face. Wow, 
How many people, men and women, I have simply wanted to slap the shit out of on Facebook for the way they have responded to simple questions or truthful answers. It happens every day. You would not respond that way to me in person. If I inform you of something, if I pulled out my Bible and tried to show you the scripture, you would not respond to me that way in person. Or when I'm finished with you, you'll wish you hadn't. So I've been discussing the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11 with one individual who just doesn't get it. But at least he has not gotten disrespectful, at least yet. In fact, he's been a gentleman about it so far. And that's fine. That's what we should seek. So it helped me come to the realization, this discussion. And in Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, speaking of the slaying of the two witnesses, it says, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. This individual insists that Revelation 11.8 should be interpreted literally. Although there has been no Sodom now for 4,000 years, and Jerusalem was not in Egypt, he insists that the phrase, where our Lord was crucified, must refer to the literal Jerusalem. And in fact, when John wrote the Revelation, Jerusalem the city had not existed for around two dozen years, as it was destroyed and leveled by the Romans in 70 AD. By all accounts, I have, I believe, in Christreich, in the opening chapters, six witnesses by early Christian writers at the time of or predating, or I should say as early as or predating, the Nicene Council, that John wrote the Revelation around 94-95 AD, and the details are in Christrike, not all in my head, I'm not that good. Where in this verse, Revelation 11-8, it says, spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, in prophecy, as I explained last night in the Zechariah program, in prophecy, Egypt is often merely an allegorical reference to the captivity of Israel. Israel went into captivity for their sins. If you don't think the captivity of Egypt was the result of sin, you should ponder the steps that led the children of Israel to Egypt in the first place. A process which began when Joseph's eleven brothers conspired against him in Dothan. Alabama. It's right up the road. I'm kidding. Dothan in, in Palestine, of course. Genesis chapter 37. His eleven brothers considered killing him and betrayed him to aliens instead. That's the sin that led the children of Israel into the captivity in Egypt. As for the later children of Israel who went into captivity... Egypt is nevertheless representative of captivity. And Sodom, even though the sodomy at Sodom was committed by Canaanites, Sodom is representative of their sins, the sins they learned from later Canaanites, at least part of their sins. 
Jerusalem is not mentioned in Revelation chapter 11. It was already leveled by the Romans when the revelation was given to John, as we have said. But where it says, speaking spiritually of Sodom and Egypt, where it says, where our Lord was crucified, that too is an allegory. Sodom, think about this. Sodom, representing sin, and Egypt, representing captivity. The reason why Christ was crucified was to make reconciliation for the sin <laughs> for the sin and the captivity of Israel. If there was no sin and no captivity as a result of sin, there would have been no need for the sacrifice made by Christ in his crucifixion. So Christ was literally crucified at Old Jerusalem, but he was allegorically crucified in Sodom and in Egypt. Of course, I do not remember what was going through my mind when I wrote the commentary for Revelation chapter 11. But I might be thinking that one aspect of the prophecy needs to be discussed while not really considering the need to discuss other aspects because not all of my potential readers are on the same page, even within the limited Christian identity audience. So, I'm not even thinking of those aspects. I'm trying to concentrate on what I think needs to be discussed. And some things get neglected and fall by the wayside. So I hope I have improved and can improve my work even further in that regard. To me, I always took it for granted that people understood that Egypt, references to Egypt in prophecy, meant references to captivity, or were ref allegorical references to captivity. I guess I took that for granted, and other people don't understand that. So they're confused over these prophecies. For instance, I believe it's in Isaiah, off the top of my head, Yahweh says that he will make a highway from Egypt to Assyria. He's not talking about literal Egypt and literal Assyria. He's talking about joining all the children of Israel out of captivity when he gathers them. There's a captivity of Egypt, and there's a captivity of Assyria. And as I explained last night, there are Israelites of the captivity of Egypt that never join themselves to Yahweh in Sinai. So technically, from God's viewpoint, because they weren't with Moses in the Exodus, because they left Egypt through another route, they're still in the Egypt captivity. Paul called them wild olives. But not everything I can say about a scripture can get into a commentary. And neither is it fitting to do such a thing. So every program I prepare, I have to sit and wonder when I'm typing, and I type 12 pages in a day or a day and a half, how much I should put into it. Not saying everything I can, but trying to siphon out what's necessary to say and using that. And when you miss a perspective, well, that's easy to do because you're only human. Scripture has such great depth that a chapter may take weeks to cover, and a book 
would never be printed if you tried to get it all in there. But one cannot understand the prophecies of God from a purely literal perspective, and trying to do so often makes a mockery of Scripture. Understanding the prophecies requires a reflection on all of its allegory and symbolism, and such an understanding can only come after one acquires a thorough understanding of Scripture and of history and of the language underlying Scripture through much study. I will hopefully remember to expound on this passage, Revelation 11.8, as well as many similar passages where I have the same problem, where my perspective takes it for granted that my readers know certain things, and now I am learning that they don't know those things. And it's not my fault if I claim to know them. I could show you them in Scripture, just like Sodom and Egypt, where Christ was crucified. If Yahweh God is willing, I do hope to expand on Christ Reich in the near future. But what is tiring, what is even exasperating, is to encounter so many I so-called, I'll call them so-called identity Christians, because they're really not identifying much at all. So many so-called identity Christians on Facebook and other social media who are willing to argue for hours in the defense of niggers. It is incredible to me how many people there are who despise me and embrace absolute clowns like the rabbi in Chicago because they seem to love these niggers, these other so-called races, as much or even more than they love their fellow white Christians. They will argue with a white man for hours, insisting that God loves Africans or prairie niggers, or swami niggers, or squat monsters, or yellow monkeys, while they may agree that the covenant and promises are for Israel, in many ways these people are still preaching universalism. I will call that universalism by the back door, and here I will explain. It is for this that so many identity Christians hate our message at Christogenia. And not only me, but Pastor Downey and other pastors who teach this. And I can only assure them of this. One day, each and every one of them will be ashamed. But not for me or on my account. They'll be ashamed on account of niggers. Because all the niggers will be as though they have not been. And that's what the scripture teaches about them. If you believe that the non-Adamic races, as they are today, especially, were created by Yahweh our God, then you must believe that he called them good, because everything which God created in Genesis, he called good. Doing this, you have entered into universalism by the back door. If the non-white races are good, how does Christ say in Matthew chapter 13 that again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. If you get cast away simply for 
being naughty, being bad in that sense, then the mercy of Christ is not. Where is the mercy of Christ? The words for kind there in that passage has nothing to do with behavior. The words for kind there in that passage is the Greek word genos, and genos means race. Even the rabbi in Chicago would admit that. So if there are bad races of fish in the sea, which are representative of people, can we really imagine that God created them? This we must reject, since God did not create anything in Genesis which he called bad. When did God create anything that was bad? Rather, Christ said in another place that every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. There again we see that there must be races of people here which were planted by someone other than the Heavenly Father, which the Heavenly Father did not plant. A plant is planted from its roots, not from its branches. The honest person confronted with this should immediately realize that he has learned something wrong and he should want to learn more. It gets old. Hearing from supposed identity Christians that God created non-white races. When the Bible makes no explicit mention of them except to call them beasts or devils or a plague or a swarm or the flood from the serpent's mouth. It gets old hearing from identity Christians that God created the non-white races when Yahshua Christ himself described them in Revelation chapter 12 as a flood from the mouth of the serpent. Every plant that Yahweh did not plant shall be rooted up. And if you want to divide the word of God in truth, then you should better investigate which plants Yahshua Christ was talking about. Jeremiah, Obadiah, Psalms, and the Revelation all prophecy the end of the non-Adamic, non-Israelite races. Jeremiah tells the children of Israel in two different places that Yahweh shall make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee. Since nations in Scripture are groups of people and not governments or geographical areas, Christians must stop to consider two things. What nations will be left after this prophecy in Jeremiah happens? And to what places have Israelites not been scattered? I think we will find at least a few Israelites dwelling in every single country on earth. So there probably are not going to be any non-Israelites left once Jeremiah 30.11 and Jeremiah 46.28 are fulfilled. If we believe that the children of Israel are the Zion of God, as we should believe, that the people themselves are God's holy mountain, as they are described in Daniel chapter 2 and elsewhere, Obadiah the prophet tells us this, For the day of the Lord is, upon, is near upon all the heathen, as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been.
I read this, and I've read this in a hundred podcasts, I read this to mean that all of the non-Israelite peoples feeding off of or benefiting from the children of Israel in this Babylonian system under which we live are going to be as though they had not been. The niggers are not going back to niggerland. On the day of the wrath of Yahweh, at the return of Christ, they shall be as though they had not been. So Christians must stop to consider this every time they think of defending a non-white who is in white countries or otherwise living at the expense of whites, whether he has a job or not, or is otherwise benefiting from white society. The scripture promises that they shall be as if they never existed, so Christians should think twice about defending them. In chapter 2 of his second epistle, the Apostle Peter is talking about people who do not belong in the assembly of God. And he calls them natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, who shall utterly perish in their own corruption. He calls them spots and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. He calls them cursed children. Now, what spots and blemishes did Yahweh God create? What cursed children did God create? Some so-called identity Christians insist that the non-white races are the beasts of God's creation in Genesis chapter 1. But what people as beasts did God create which were made to be taken and destroyed when everything that God created was good? I posted my It Gets Old statement in a Christian identity group on Facebook, along with the link to the Christogenia podcasts from Pragmatic Genesis on the non-Adamic races. Then some woman, a feminist woman, a lover of the Chicago rabbi, and a follower of longtime identity pastor Dan Gaiman, whose name, and yeah, I'm going to say it, whose name is Laurel Jackson Vance, came back with a remark, and she said, So you are saying that Satan created the dark races. And what about Lucifer? Satan, in parentheses. Didn't God create him to be the highest angel? But look, he is now God's greatest adversary, and will not be in the kingdom in the end days. The Bible says that God created all things, and without him nothing would exist. And aside from some of her silly Catholic ideas, which are expressed here, such as using Lucifer as a proper name, which I purposely overlooked, I said to her, right, God created all things that were created, but God did not create bastards. We cannot blame God for our sin when we create bastards. I would ask you to listen to the podcasts. Wow, if I could prove all of this in a Facebook post, I would not have posted the podcasts. I would have done that. But Laurel does not want to listen to any evidence, and that attitude is very common among identity Christians. They do not want to reconsider what they think they've learned. In some respects, they are more arrogant than most Judeo-Christians, conceited and self-righteous with the little knowledge they have. They imagine that there is nothing beyond what they think they know. She repi- 
So she responded, Bastards are certainly a hybrid that God did not create. But you said above that God did not create the non-white races. And she says, But he certainly did. Genesis 2.19 clearly states, And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field. End of discussion. She said, end of discussion. In a discussion group. Wow. She actually thinks I missed that verse? And she wants to get all bossy on me and end of discussion. She wants to make an authoritative comment against me on my thread in a discussion group. And then she wants to say, end of discussion. At that point, I'm going to slap her in the face. As soon as she says, end of discussion. And then I'm going to have to beat her husband's ass for letting her be such a feminist. End of discussion. She wants to chime in and make a decree in defense of the non-white races and insist that the discussion ends there in a group which is for the explicit purpose of discussing such things. Her arrogance escapes her and her ignorance. So it only got worse from there. It got a lot worse. I was going to discuss that later, but I'll probably let it go tonight. I know it is a common belief in Christian identity circles that because of that because all of the animals of God's creation were presented to animal and we are told that no fitting wife was found among them that there must have been potential two-legged animals among them that's how they get the other races as beasts in Genesis that's how they do it they do it out of sophistry oh Adam was presented all the animals and he didn't have a wife those animals must have contained two-legged beasts well Maybe there were some chimpanzees and orangutans, but I bet my ass there were no niggers. The other races were not among the beasts that were presented to Adam. I myself believed that error at one time, until around 2005, when I wrote the Broken Cisterns essays, as it was taught by most of the elder identity teachers. But now, through much study, since at least that time, since at least 2005, and probably a couple of years before that, I understood it to be just that, an error, an error of sophistry. The text does not insist that there were two-legged beasts in Genesis 2.19. It is sheer sophistry to insist that Adam was presented with these other races, especially as they are today, as beasts, when the scripture of Genesis 2.19 also informs us that Adam was presented with cattle and birds as well. There were three categories in Genesis 2.19 representing every living creature. Go read it every living creature which God had made. Those three categories are every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and all cattle. So if cattle are a certain type of large animal, because the Hebrew word is behemoth, and every fowl of the air are birds, Adam did not find a wife among them, and they too must have been candidates by the thinking of the beast of the field, Laurel Jackson Vance, types, by that way of thinking, the birds and the cattle had to count as candidates as well as the beasts. Therefore, beast of the field in this context doesn't stand for birds, 
and it doesn't stand for cattle. So, what could it stand for? Niggers? No. Sorry, we're comparing animals and birds here. In this context, it must stand for every type of animal which was not a large ruminant, a cattle, or a bird. That would include chipmunks and squirrels, lions and leopards, dogs and possums, raccoons, armadillos, and all sorts of other animals, bunny rabbits. But it does not necessarily include any so-called people as beasts. It is also absolute ignorance to believe that even if God created some cognizant race as beasts, that any of the non-whites of today are representative of that unknown original beast. When there is no proof upholding the idea and much historical proof to the contrary, the ultimate hypocrisy of the so-called identity Christians who claim these things, as the rabbi in Chicago has done, is to claim that these so-called other races are beasts in the Old Testament, and then they claim that they're men in the New Testament. I have seen and heard them do it with my own eyes and ears. That is also an, a major element of universalism by the back door. In order to understand what it is that Adam is being presented with in Genesis chapter 2, and why, which we will call the antithesis, we must understand what the sin of the fallen angels was, which we will call the thesis, the thesis of the fallen angels. This is Satan. Yes, Genesis is the antithesis. Why? Well, first it wasn't written until 1500 B.C., by Moses, it's written in parables revealing the past. Genesis is the antithesis because the sin of the fallen angels began before the creation of Adam. And that is why the serpent is the representative of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The book of Enoch from the Dead Sea Scrolls tells us a little about that tree. And the following paragraph, one long paragraph, is from my presentation of Luke chapter 4, given here just over four years ago. From a translation of the Qumran Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, a new translation, by Michael Wise, Martin Abegg, and Edward Cook, on page 247, a translation of 1Q23, that's the 23rd numbered scroll, or fragment of a scroll, coming from Qumran Cave 1. Fragments 1 and 6, so the scroll is in pieces, which are unfortunately highly fragmented. And these pieces say that these fallen angels collected 200 donkeys, 200 asses, 200 rams of the flock, 200 goats, 200 beasts of the field, from every animal. Beasts of the field equals animals. From every bird, for miscegenation, which is race mixing. And in the same source, 4Q531, fragment 2, they defiled. They begot giants and monsters. They begot, and behold, all the earth was corrupted with its blood and by the hand of the giants which did not suffice for them, and they were seeking to devour many. 
the monsters attacked it. And, of course, the scroll is highly fragmentary. And again, in 4Q532, column 2, we see references to the corruption of the flesh, to all monsters, that they would arise, they would lack in true knowledge. They wouldn't believe that God only created the Adamic man. They want to believe God created niggers. They would lack in true knowledge. I'm sorry, it doesn't say all that. I'm conjecturing. Because the earth grew corrupt... And then it talks about the angels and what they did, that in the end, it will perish and die. They caused great corruption in the earth. And while quite fragmentary, these scrolls and the general theme of these fragments for what is known as the Book of Giants is readily evident. A very similar version of what is related here is found in 1 Enoch, chapters 86 and 88. When I say one Enoch, I'm referring to the Ethiopic manuscripts, which I would rather not quote from. It is highly probable that accounts such as these were the inspiration for the ancient chimera myths of both Greek and Near Eastern mythology. The offspring which resulted from the unions of diverse species are later called bastards. For instance, in the Dead Sea Scroll, labeled as 4Q204, which is reckoned among the Enoch literature, and their extermination is forecast, where it says, Exterminate all the spirits of the bastards and the sons of the watchers, which seems to have been speaking prophetically and is speaking of the offspring of the fallen angels. In the end, there are sheep, and everything else is a goat destined for the lake of fire, where are hell and death and the false prophets. So that's the thesis, the crimes of the fallen angels. And in response to the crimes of the fallen angels, Yahweh planted the Adamic man. And the antithesis is to teach the Adamic man what real marriage was. Evidently, there are two trees in the Garden of Eden, which without a doubt represent people. I don't care what you want to say about the other trees. These two trees doubtlessly represent people. And if the other trees, which Adam and Eve can eat from, which they were told they could eat from, if those trees represent people, then they must represent other Adamic people, other people of the same creation. As he said in Genesis chapter 1, he made them male and female. Those two trees, those two trees, they are the tree of life, which is Christ and his Adamic race, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which are the fallen angels, as the serpent is directly linked to them in Revelation chapter 12. They had the knowledge of good, and rebelling against God by corrupting his creation, they wandered off into the knowledge of evil. Among other things, the Apostle Jude relates these fallen angels to Cain, to Sodom, to the error of Balaam and Balak, who tried to get the children of Israel to race mix, and says of these fallen angels that they are bound in chains of darkness. They are not, Jude does not say that they are bound in darkness and chains. Rather, he says they are bound in chains of darkness. And Jude's entire epistle describes how these fallen angels are among us, how they feast with us. So the chains of darkness 
can only be an allegory for the dark bodies of the corrupted genetics. That is especially evident when everything else Jude says about them is considered. So the error of the fallen angels was to corrupt God's creation and race mix even themselves. But the antithesis is this. When God created Adam, he taught him the law of kind after kind, and that animals were not suitable mates. So his wife must be, as it is says in Genesis chapter 2, flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. If you do not believe that even white people could sink to the level of having sex with animals, you had better check the headlines, because the stories we hear about it are quite frequent. Sheep, horses, dogs, donkeys, there is nothing below a white man when he rejects his God. Nothing. Oh, God wouldn't be telling Adam not to have sex with horses. Yeah, he would be telling Adam not to have sex with horses, because this very day... There are atoms in this world having sex with horses. I have said this a thousand times. I must say it once more. There are two trees in the garden, one of life and one of evil. And in the time of the end, there are only two sorts of people, sheep and goats, wheat and tares, good fish and bad fish. Cain is not the only corruption of the devil. There were many more before him. So there was an entire tree who did Cain marry. He didn't create. Cain did not marry anybody that Yahweh created. I'll tell you that. Cain did not marry anyone Yahweh created. And there were many more corruptions before Cain. So there was an entire tree of good and evil which was already in the garden. The tares were planted by the devil from the beginning. And all of the other races are bad in the end. Tares are not Jews only, but every plant which Yahweh did not plant is a tear. The tares were planted by the devil. Unless you can show specifically where Yahweh created non-white races and they are called good, you are deceiving yourself if you think that Yahweh created them at all. Please show me. Please show me two or three verses in Scripture by which we know with certainty that there should be other races of so-called people among us in these last days who are good. The Bible describes the aliens among us. In Deuteronomy, in the curses of disobedience, in Deuteronomy chapters 28 and 29, it says that these other races, these aliens, will take our sons and our daughters and we will grieve. But we will not be able to do a damn thing about it because of our own disobedience. So these other races among us, they are our punishment. We do not defend them since Christians are instructed to come out from among them and be separate and not to be joined to the impure. If we teach that these other races are somehow good, then we invite further such punishment. Rather, the prophet Joel describes these other races devouring our wealth and our children. He describes them as locusts, as caterpillars, as pommel worms, as canker worms. That is what I would call sand niggers, apricot niggers, yellow monkeys, and squat monsters. That is the only scriptural way in which these other races should be considered as non-entities, as locusts, cankerworms, caterpillars, and pommel worms.
And when Yahweh is done punishing us, they shall be as though they had not been. If you do not understand the things which I have said here, at least go, at least enough to go and study the matter for yourself and produce the necessary evidence to correct me if I am wrong, then I am confident that you probably have some unseemly agenda. I can also say this, because half of the people claiming to be Christian identity already hate me. I know that much from Facebook. So it really does not matter if they hate me even more. I can say this, any so-called identity pastor who maintains that Yahweh created the non-white races is a liar and a fool. Otherwise, he's a snake in the grass. Any so-called identity pastor who maintains that Yahweh created the modern non-white races is a hypocrite and denies the very words of Christ. Christ describes them as a flood coming from the mouth of the serpent. There are people born from above. And the only alternative is to be born from below, if you're not born from above. The non-white races must therefore be born from below, as they come from the mouth of the serpent, and not from the mouth of God. So the serpent is responsible for them, as the serpent is the great corrupter of the creation of God. It is time that identity Christians slam the back door shut in the face of such universalism. God did not create niggers. He didn't create chinks. He didn't create those swami nigger misfits on the Indian subcontinent. Don't tell me God created those beasts with tails and six arms and legs and ten toes and three heads. Don't tell me that. That's a cesspool. God does not create genetic cesspools. I hear it all the time. Oh, Fink has no love. Because I don't kiss the asses of men. Oh, Fink teaches with hatred. Because I tell them what I believe to be the plain truth, plainly, directly, and bluntly. Oh, Fink is mean and stubborn. Because I'm confident and unyielding. I hear the same old broken tunes all the time, and those who sing them never want to sit and address the issues like men. They get butt hurt. They get up in their feelings, and they start using ad hominem attacks. Oh, you're a Jew. Oh, Eli James said you're a Jew. Yeah, right, okay. Let's see who the real Jew is. So the people who say such things are only looking for excuses. Or they are jealous old rabbis from Chicago who cannot teach the truth and want to keep others from hearing it. Christian love is keeping the law. Being spiritual is keeping the law. Hate is the ability to defend the things you love. Hate is a natural godly mechanism which allows you to defend the things you love. I recently had a conversation with a man that asserted, and, and the issue here was sodomites, that asserted that we must be kind to sinners, that Jesus was soft and gentle with people. So we should gently persuade sodomites and other sinners 
He insisted that we should have what he called agape love towards these sinners. Wow. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Was that gentle persuasion? Was that agape love? You know, the apostles brought it to Christ's attention that Pilate had killed a lot of people in Galilee, mixing their blood with their sacrifices, meaning that he killed them on a feast day or on a Sabbath. And did Christ get upset about them? No. What did Christ say? He said, unless you repent, you will all suffer likewise. That's what Christ said. He's God. He knows where the sinners are, and he knows where his people are. And all such judgments and trials are for the glory of God and the education of men. Instead, Christians are commanded to separate themselves, not only from the unclean races, but also from unrepentant sinners, and that we should not have fellowship with them. An example is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul said, I wrote to you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Well, that would include sodomites. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous so we don't company with fornicators, or the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one, no, not even to eat, so we shouldn't even eat with people who gamble too much, who gamble at all, that's covetousness, or who drink too much. And we certainly shouldn't even eat with people who are fornicators or sodomites. Paul's not talking about people who commit these specific sins. Paul's talking about people who commit any sin, and he's using these sins as an example. But this man insisted that we must have love toward these sinners, and that without such love, we are only hollow windbags. He's abusing 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I believe it is. He's abusing it. The man is seriously confused. Most identity Christians, even, are seriously confused. He is using what is basically a Marxist dialectic in order to embarrass Christians into accepting sinners. And we can't accept sinners. That is a trick of the devil that has been played out in the Judaized churches for over a hundred years now. There are different types of love, and the scripture defines for us exactly what agape love is. The definition is right in the scripture. The Christian love that we should all have for each other, the Apostle John describes exactly what it is. And that love for each other is conditional. It's based on the condition that we really love our God. So agape love for real Christians is a conditional love. Only God's love for us is unconditional. From 2 John. From verse 4, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, as we have received a commandment from the Father, 
And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, and that word is agape, and this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. This is the singular commandment, to love one another. There are the plural commandments that we must walk after if we love one another. If we don't keep his commandments, we don't love him, and we don't love one another. Agape love, and this is love, that we walk after his commandments. That's what agape love is. When we all walk after the commandments of God, we will all get along just fine. And there won't be any niggers among us, and none of us will be defending the non-white races. From 1 John chapter 5, in case you didn't get it in 2 John, verse 6. From 1 John chapter 5, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep His commandments. That word is agape. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. Yeah, just keep your pecker out of horses and bunny rabbits. In both cases, the apostle used the word agape, where we see love in the King James Version. So agape love is keeping the commandments of Christ. That's what agape love is. When we all keep God's commandments, we have no problem loving one another. It comes naturally. The man also tried to say that homosexuals could have a relationship with Jesus. Wow. This man claims to be an identity Christian. Really? This is what Jesus says from John chapter 14. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth in you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But you see me, because I live, ye shall live also. And at that day ye shall know that I am in the Father, and my Father in me, and I in you. He that has my commandments, and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will keep myself manifest to him. No sodomite or arsenokoites, which basically describes a man who performs sexual acts with men. There's no way around that word. Paul uses it three times in his epistles. No sodomite can keep the commandments of God, because the commandments of God say that a man who lies with a man should be put to death. Now, I can accept the idea of a repentant homosexual. I wouldn't let him babysit my boys. No way. I can accept the idea of a repentant homosexual, even if I would be cautious. We're exhorted to do that. But if such a man is repentant, he should no longer consider himself a homosexual. That is another Marxist Jew ploy. 
to get people to define themselves by what they do in bed or what they may have done in bed in the past. You don't define yourself by what you do in bed. That is Jewish Marxism. Another contention this man had is that a homosexual could be spiritual. Is that truly the case? Paul of Tarsus has told us that Christians should strive to establish the law in Romans chapter 3, and that the law is spiritual in Romans chapter 7, and that those who walk in the Spirit forsake the deeds of the flesh in Romans chapter 8 that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So if one is truly spiritual, one keeps the law. If one claims to be spiritual and is not keeping the law, you are deceiving yourself, you are a liar. Now we are all going to fail at one time or another hopefully only in small ways. But we nevertheless strive to establish the law. And even Paul of Tarsus explained that those times that he does sin, he understands that the law is good when his heart is convicted of his sin, he recognizes that the law is good and he strives to keep it and do better next time. That's why John said that the children of God cannot sin, because even when they do sin, they have an intercessor in Jesus Christ. So, being a Christian, sure as hell, does not give one license to sin. Peter, the apostle, had warned against using your liberty as a cloak to commit sins. The same man complained about putting levels on sin presuming that all of us still sin. So I guess he figures that allowing oneself some temporary fit of anger or having one beer too many is just as bad as waking up in bed next to another man in the morning after having done some unmentionable things or maybe in a stall next to a horse. But the Apostle John also put levels on sin, as he called it. This is found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. If any man seeth his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life from them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. So, if the apostle puts levels on sin, we should sure as hell follow in his footsteps and put levels on sin. Because having one beer too many sure as hell is not as bad as waking up in bed next to a donkey or a nigger. There is no justification for sinners. There is repentance. But repentance requires us to cease from sin. And as Peter explains in 2 Peter 2.14 Only the accursed cannot cease from sin. (coughs) So if you're accursed, if you cannot cease from sin, you go jump in a lake of fire now and spare us all the trouble in the meantime. 
As Paulus said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we must put the wicked out of our company and not even associate with them. There is no other Christian alternative. This was posted in the Christiania Forum and NATO, one of our good friends and members of this forum, said that the whole playing field regarding homosexuality has been rigged psychologically. We are all tempted to sin, and we are, even sin unto death, and at one time or another, I'm sure most of us have been. But we resist that temptation, and it flees from us. How is the temptation to act homosexually any different? Now that they've been assigned to some arbitrary Marxist demographic of men who supposedly are only attracted to other men, somehow they have special rights in terms of sin. And of course, they don't. They've been fooled and fooled themselves to fit within that demographic defined by Jewish psychiatrists and to live within its confines. And NATO says, I've known enough sodomites to know that they are like caricatures of themselves, expressing their perversion wherever they can, as if they need to prove their degeneracy to themselves. Under this layer of perversion, there is such sexual confusion, like the racial confusion experienced by a bastard. Christians themselves, although not being tempted by the same sin, are tempted to sympathize with these degenerates. In doing so, they change the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, pandering to the whims of sodomites and the bullying of the mainstream media. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. And they commit such things, they which commit such things are worthy of death. So in the eyes of Paul, those who commit such things are committing that sin unto death that the Apostle John put on that higher level of sin, which is more wicked than most other sins. With that in mind, as I said in the recent Pulse article at Christagenia. I wonder which we will see the end of first, the end of sodomites or the end of sodomy. I want to talk about Christian judgment. Might be my last topic tonight. There might be one more or two. I posted this on Facebook. I want to get it on a recording. I want to, um, I know that a lot more people will see it on a recording than on my Facebook account. I posted something else on Facebook today explaining that um, even though, and I'm not bragging, I'm just telling the truth, even though for the last seven years I have had the largest and by far the most visited Christian identity website ever, I have only 200 friends on a Facebook account that's only a year old, but it only has 200 friends. Other people have 5,000 Facebook friends, 3,000 Facebook friends. I only have 209, I think it is. And that's because I try to be picky about my friends. There are some people who um, are influential figures. I'm not going to name names. 
who are authors and write books and things like that, who have sent me Facebook requests that I've accepted, figuring that they must be aware of my work, and I hope to be an influence on them with my Christian identity theology and my attitude towards the other races and what's going on in the world today. So even though I don't like all of their Facebook friends and everything on their, on their walls, I've accepted them anyway. But those people are few and far between. There's only a small handful of them. The real reason, and no Daisy Duke is not on my Facebook friends list, the real reason why I only have 209 Facebook friends is because I turn down at least 75% of the requests I get, which are all from people that are ostensibly identity Christians. And I turn them down because they have too many friends that are half-naked bimbos, or they have friends that are race mixers, or they have friends that are niggers or chinks. They have half-naked bimbos on their friends lists, posing in bikinis and stuff like that, and they're not even white. They're Filipinos or, or, or South American squat monsters. Are you really Christian identity? I don't need you as my friend. I don't want you as a friend. Don't send me a Facebook friend request. I'd rather slap you in the head if I ever saw you. What What are you thinking about? Having race mixers and, and Filipino squat monsters and half-naked bimbos on your friends list. That's not Christian, and it's certainly not identity. But that's another topic. Maybe for another day. Maybe I'll start naming their names. I should. This is about Christian judgment, and this strikes home because I posted this hoping that even some people who really respect me and my work can, can read it and understand it and put it into practice. When you suspect an apparent fellow Christian is doing something wrong, engaging in some sin, like he's ordering an extraordinarily an extraordinarily large amount of rabbit feed to his house. I'm kidding. When you suspect an apparent fellow Christian is doing something wrong, or behaving in a way that is contrary to a sound Christian walk, the scriptures inform us that we have a responsibility to confront the problem. But they also inform us on how we should do so, in a manner that may save us from drama and making false accusations. In Galatians 6.1 it says, Brethren, even if a man should already be caught up in some transgression, you, those of the Spirit, restore such a man in the spirit of meekness, watching yourself, lest also you may be tested. The Christian objective should not be to destroy a brother who has sinned, but to correct him so that he may once again become a functioning fellow Christian. My brethren, James chapter 5, if one among you should stray from the truth and one should correct him, you must know that he correcting a sinner from the error of his way shall save his soul from death and shall cover a multitude of sins. When a man receives a report that someone has done some wrong, he cannot immediately act on it publicly. No, don't do it. I know you really want to, yet you want to be righteous and warn your friends and expose the sinners. I understand that. 
but you can't immediately act on it publicly. Rather, you must be prudent. What if the allegation is false? What if you don't have all the facts? You think what you see is true. You think what you see is what you told it is. What if the apparent sin was not really a sin because the context of the act is unknown to you when you hear the report? For that reason, Paul had advised Timothy, an accusation against an elder you must not receive publicly except by two or three witnesses. And those witnesses better corroborate one another perfectly. That's the story in Daniel, in Susanna, in the Apocrypha, where a young woman was accused of some unseemly deed, and Daniel separated the witnesses to Jewish rabbis, and one of them was from Chicago, I know, I kind of read it in the Apocrypha of the Apocrypha, I'm kidding. Well, Daniel separated the two Jewish rabbis from Chicago, and their stories didn't match. And that was a real basic example of how we should approach these things. And a lot of cases might be more complicated than that, but we must follow that example. Because people have agendas, especially people on Facebook. They all have agendas. They love to argue and make ad hominem attacks on people under false names and sock puppets. And they make a sport of it. An accusation against an elder you must not receive publicly except by two or three witnesses to that particular accusation. In other words, keep the accusation to yourself. Do not receive it publicly, meaning in the eyes of others you cannot accept it unless there are sufficient witnesses. I have a predicament right now where a supposed white nationalist leader has unfriended me and, and separated himself from me, and that's okay, I don't care. It's on him, it's not on me. Because he made an accusation against somebody else, and expected me to just accept it. And that's what a politician does. I'm not going to accept his accusation, ever, unless he has two or three definite witnesses that this man has done something wrong. We have to put things on the back burner, even when we don't want to. When we, when, when we want to neglect the law of God and conduct our own form of justice... That's fleshly, because we don't have all the facts. And that's why, in the end, only God can be our judge. That's why Paul said, let God be true and every man a liar. Every man's a liar, why? Because he wants to be? No, because no man has all the facts. No man. So we can only judge by the narrow band of information that we may have. And quite often, we're going to be wrong. So we need two or three witnesses. We need to put things on the back burner and not jump to conclusions about people. So the scripture informs us, even with two or three witnesses, of the proper protocol for handling such accusations. Here are three verses from Matthew which explain that protocol. Matthew 18 verses 15 through 17, and I will offer a comment after each verse. Matthew 18:15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. 
You have gained a brother, either because he will immediately confess that he had been wrong and repent, and appreciate your correction and become your friend, or possibly explain to you why something was done, and you recognizing his honesty may become his friend. But even if there is no lasting friendship, there will nevertheless be a lasting respect. So, if some bimbo sends me something, and accuses a brother on Facebook. If I want to handle this properly, I have to get the bimbo and the brother together. i got to get them together and hear both sides, while they confront one another, because the truth will come out. The truth of the matter will be brought to light. We don't just accept some bimbo's accusation against the brother. We don't do it. Because the bimbo might have an agenda. And the same thing works in other situations. Men can be just as bad as women. There's no doubt. I'm not using women as an example, believe me. I'm just taking the most immediately frequent type of situation, because it happens all the time. I've seen women all the time accuse men in front of other men, trying to get even with a man who did not kiss her ass. I had that situation on Facebook all the time, myself. This some bitch named Dana Yannick. Dana Yannick has been going around for six years telling people that I'm a Jew. You know why she hates me? I'll tell you why she hates me. Because I didn't suck her ass six years ago when she knew I was a single man. And she wanted my sympathy. That's why she hates me. And I found out she's a Paul basher, and I wouldn't countenance her Paul bashing. So then she started calling me a Jew. Okay, <laughs> I'd rather be a Jew than a friend of Dana Yannick's. And yeah, I named her name, because she deserves it. She's just a medalist old whore. And I would say that to her face. If somebody makes an accusation, you have to get the accuser and the person that's the subject of the accusation together and sort it out. That's what Matthew 18.15 says. And then, if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, one or two more witnesses, so that all three of the witnesses with the person making the accusation can confront the man being accused. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Now, of course, the person making the accusation has to have corroborated evidence. The other witnesses, of course, must know the facts of the case and be able to prove them, or they cannot be witnesses. Simply taking another person's word for something does not make somebody a witness. When confronted with these witnesses, the alleged sinner should come to understand that he must acknowledge his sin or be prepared to defend himself by disproving the allegation before the witnesses. And the story of Susanna and the Apocrypha is an ideal little biblical story, and I sincerely believe that it's a legitimate story, which introduced the prophet Daniel to the people of Judea in Babylon as he was a young man. It should have probably been the preface to our book of Daniel. Being the preface to the book of Daniel is where it belongs. Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. After a brother and the witnesses all get together, 
And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglects to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. In other words, if a man is unrepentant, if you have three witnesses with proof that he behaved in a certain manner or did a certain thing, verifiable witnesses that all confront the man and the man offers his defense so that the truth comes out, so that both sides are heard, and the man's guilty and refuses to repent, then you put him out of your community. But only then... Only then do you put him out of your community. Otherwise, you're causing damage to the reputation of an innocent man. And when you do that, the scripture tells us, when you accept accusations and condemn a man for something that is not true, that is not proven. The scripture tells us in the Old Testament, I don't remember exactly where it is, but it's in there, that you suffer the same penalty that he would suffer if he was innocent and you condemned him. You should suffer the same penalty. If you bear false witness against your neighbor, you should suffer the penalty that your innocent neighbor would have suffered if he was condemned. So you have to be careful about who you condemn and for what reason. That's the way it is. So Christians should only make public accusations against their fellows. If the first two conditions have been met, and there is still no satisfaction, then it becomes public. If the conditions in Matthew 18.15 and Matthew 18.16 have been met, then you could make it public. And any violation of this process is an abrogation of good Christian judgment. But if a brother is clearly guilty and remains unrepentant, he must be shunned by the Christian community once his sins are made known. The best example is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Mercy must be the first order of business, and condemnation is necessary only where mercy is impossible. Well, tonight was more or less a series of rants. I understand that. But I had some things that for a long time I wanted to get off my chest. And I've actually been compiling these for about three months. There are more, but I think that I've um, run my mouth long enough. I do hope that some of these rants help some of our brethren. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Good night.